resources presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. We want to welcome you to the Identity Matters podcast. Within this podcast, we do exactly that, is we cover the identity issues related to a true, authentic, born-again, indwelt believer. Hi, my name is Dr. Finney, and I will be your host today. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. We've been right in the middle of a series called The Abiding Life of Christ. A lot of people, when they think of abiding, they typically think of a Bible passage because Jesus himself, one of his primary illustrations that he has used within the New Testament, although Jesus wasn't uh, saying the things that he said so we could have the New Testament, Jesus just simply lived his life. He lived out of the overflow and abundance of the Father living inside him. So if you could keep this little flow in mind, that everything is about what is in, what God himself represents, sitting on the throne, and whatever is contained within that position. If you could just picture it in your mind of, of God, whether in your mind he has a gray beard and, you know, long white draping robe. It doesn't matter how you're really visually viewing him, but just picture in your mind God sitting on the throne and everything that there is, ever was, and ever will be is sitting in that personhood, sitting on the throne. Thrones have always been symbolic for earthly supreme authority. So whether it was the supreme authority of Germany or the supreme authority of Jerusalem, supreme authority of wherever. They didn't come up with this idea in their own thinking. Thrones or throne chairs came from a spiritual principle. And this spiritual principle comes from a spiritual reality. And this spiritual reality had been seen and viewed by certain people and they brought it into their culture and sometimes turned it into a god. The Greeks were known for this. They built these unbelievable buildings with columns all around them, whatever, just to put a throne chair in there list went on and on and on and on, but someone always got the credit for who's sitting in the throne chair, whether it's Buddha or whether it's some Western god. It doesn't matter. It is spiritual. Now, Satan himself got pinpointed as being in a place where there was a throne and he sat in this throne. Now, a lot of Christians, whether you're a Christ follower, thinker of Christ, or whether you are indwelt by Christ, thinking of Christ, it doesn't make any difference. This is just flat-out facts. Facts equals truth, if I remember correctly. What did Jesus himself say about thrones and Satan? 
Any scriptures that come to mind? Jesus came right out and said it in Revelation. This is one of the seven churches that Paul, who we're going to be talking about today, Paul established in this community. And Jesus comes along through this vision that John was having, that he was required to write it down so we can talk about it today. He was just dictating exactly what God was revealing to him, revelation. Jesus is saying to these believers, this group of body life members of Jesus Christ who have gathered together to form this fellowship in Pergamum. And Jesus comes along and says, For do you not know that Pergamum is the throne of Satan? Now one of my doctor friends came back from a trip. Okay, I'll admit to an envious trip that I've always wanted to take and still want to take. And he visited the seven churches, seven places of the churches. When he got to Pergamum, he sends me this photo. And this photo, what's left of this throne spot, was an image that was carved on the stone above the throne. The throne rocks and everything are gone. Whether people took them for souvenirs or they deteriorate, I don't know. Might be some spiritual reasoning in that too for God. I'll just take this throne out of here. But the image was on the carved into the rock, as old as it was. And guess what that image was? The medical symbol. It was the staff of Moses and the two snakes of Pharaoh coming and saying, I have control over the staff of Moses. That's what the medical symbol is. Anyone who's done their homework knows that. Later we used it more and more and more, but there was something else that developed in Pergamum that is very significant, that is directly connected to this symbol of the throne of Satan. The University of Pergamum. It was the first, historically, first university that ever focused on physical science. That's all very significant. But the point I want you guys to realize here is that this throne thing is a big deal in the spiritual world. Satan knew that. Education is a big thing in the spiritual world and to have people master the sciences of the physical becomes a replica of mastering spirituality, which we later end up calling theology. Theology, the study of God. So Satan's throne representation in Pergamum was a big deal to God, and Jesus himself thought it was a big enough deal to make this statement. Come on, believers, do you not Realize, well, history reveals to us that the throne of Satan was already in place before the fellowship was started. It wasn't the fellowship and then this great university was birthed out of this little fellowship. In Pergamum, supposedly the room is still, the foundation of the room is still there to be taken pictures of. Is this room that was given to these Christians to fellowship at Pergamum, at the university, at the throne of Satan. That is a big statement. 
Now there's positive and negative to that kind of thing, but I want you to get a little bit of a glimpse of what's going on culturally, architecturally, authority-wise, or throne-wise, when Paul was dealing with the, the Corinths, who were known for their pillars and their, their big structures to communicate something. But that's our backdrop. Now here's the question I have for our listeners. Are you seriously compelled to reveal the life of Christ to others? Or are you markedly reserved? You see, it's like the army reserves. You're trained, you're equipped to go to war, is that correct? I would hope so. The reserves have their own little supply of tanks, their own little supply of ammo, their own little supply of uniforms. They are in reserves because in case they're called on, they come out of being in reserve and they go into active duty and they can be called into war. Now if you can just think about that real to life illustration and we look at those who are just out on the front line all the time in Christ Jesus and those who are reserved. We got to ask the question, if they were ever called to the front lines, would they come? That's a great question. The other thing that you have to ask yourself is that have you received the extraordinary infusion? Infusion, when you infuse a, a certain smell into a physical object, that physical object will smell like whatever you infused into it. It literally becomes a part of the molecule system. They have the ability today to make a piece of plastic smell like a rose. It's infusion. They're infusing foods now. And the way they do that is they take an apple and they stick it in the infusing container and they put oils that have already been pre-established and they heat it at such a high temperature that those fumes literally get into that chamber and then it fuses itself into that other kind of, you know, food, apple, fruit. And then you take it out and that apple tastes like a banana. It's infusion. So to truly be infused by the Holy Spirit, it's not just being indwelt, because that will put you in the reserves. To be infused is everything, every molecule about you is delivering the message of the indwelling life to other people. So if you're a convert or are a convert to the beliefs of Jesus, but do not possess the indwelling life, there is no infusion that has ever taken place. You're not even in the reserves, but you might have signed up. And that is something that each individual has to war through together with Christ personally. And that's what separates the Christ followers from the true infused indwelt believers. In Acts 17, 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him. As he was observing the city being full of idols. 
Okay, so stay with me on this. So in order to have a provoking in an indwell believer or someone who's in reserves or whatever, there has to be something that can be provoked. So if the person has not been indwelt, and in Paul's case he was infused, which is what the terminology is used in the New Testament as being full of the Holy Spirit, or fervent in the Holy Spirit, which was oftentimes used, particularly in the case of Apollos. So there's infusion types, and then there's reserve types. So let's just take the lower end and take the in reserve type. There has to be something inside that reserved person that can be provoked. Now, within the high-end infusion type of indwell believers, they're always provoked by something. Everything you talk about, they've got something to say about it in Christ Jesus. But reserved people are not like that. It takes something to provoke them. So it's not provoking Paul Something inside Paul, in him, got provoked. And that is the indwelling life of Jesus Christ, the Spirit within him. Because see, once the Spirit is provoked, there's hell to pay for the listeners on the other end of Paul. And many of them, there would be heaven to receive. So sin stirs the spirit. So when sin does not stir the spirit, questions have to be asked of the one delivering the message or the one receiving the message. Paul's mind was greatly fronted. And when we look in the Greek in this passage, it is literally translated out as any kind of excitement, agitation, Proximus, which is basically this agitation mixed with compassion. Not just, you make me sick, agitation. It is provoked, and you are appalled at what you're seeing, but it is mixed with grace, which is compassion, and he wants to do something about it. Acts 18, 25 through 26 clearly communicates this man, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Being acquainted only with the baptism of John, underline only, being acquainted only with the baptism of underline John because this is the fork in the road we're about to dress. He was not familiar with the baptism of the indwelling life. He was familiar with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. Synagogue is the, the house or the gathering place of Jews. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Well, it's already being revealed to us in this passage that he was speaking accurately. It's already revealed in this passage that he was fervent in spirit. The boy was power-packed. But there is something that is that is being revealed to us here is that here are these two fairly seasoned Christians, indwell Christians, 
have separated something with Apollos. In other words, there was more accuracy that had to be taught to Apollos. Apollos was obviously filled with the Spirit. He obviously understood the theology behind the importance of being baptized by water. He got it. He listened very carefully to what John was doing. He obviously responded, probably had been baptized by water by this point. And as he was addressing these Jewish people, he was missing the most significant piece. That's what we have in front of us. Acts 18.27 says, And when he wanted to go across to Acacia, however that's pronounced, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews publicly, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. That's a big deal to Jews. Messiah. This is the Messiah you've been hoping for here. Great message. So the dynamics we have here is that Apollos was passionately overtaken by the fervency of the Holy Spirit. This was the evidence of his indwelling. And secondly, he was bold, powerful, and was not afraid to refute others who were speaking against the truth. I give the boy four stars right off the bat. But I can't give him the fifth star. Now those of you who know me personally and those of you who have been working with us online through the years, you know the basic foundation of what my calling is. Apollos has one, Paul had, had one, you know, et cetera, et cetera. My basic thing is to address the church of Laodicea and to address the issue specifically within the church of Laodicea of those who are Christ followers versus those who are indwelt. This is what's being addressed here. This is not a new message that Finney or any other teacher has come up with. This has been around for a very long time, and it has been a very big concern from the very beginning. Those who are caught up in the baptism of John, belief, and those who are a receiver of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, indwelt. That's what's being revealed in these passages. Believers who have a direct, full insight of truth are exactly that, they're believers. There seems to be a group being revealed to us that Paul himself steps into town to say, let me show you boys how this is done. There was something about Paul that was based on power. And there was something over here about Apollos and these 12 disciples that did what Apollos did. They were obedient to what Apollos said you got to go do. And they did it. It was about belief. Well, neither one of them are wrong. Was Apollos accurate in what he was doing? You see, there, there's no error in what John was doing. He just wasn't letting the loop completely close. 
Paul said to the Corinths one time, he said, you know, I don't stand before you with eloquent words and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I speak to you with what? Power. For I determined to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and and am crucified. So power and just knowing the basics of the gospel is where it's at. One's belief, one's power. You can't have the other one without the other one. Acts 19, 1-4 says it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through, well he just happened to pass through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now come on guys, I don't really think you need a theological degree to figure this one out. He steps into this community, comes across these 12 disciples. No, it's not the original 12 disciples. They gathered their men in groups of 12. They followed the model of Christ. That's why churches that have 12 elders, they're they're smart guys. This is what they were doing back then. And they had their 12. They were ready, fired up to go do the work. Paul's addressing these people. And the first thing out of his mouth is the same thing that comes out of my mouth when I talk to people is, are you indwelled by the life of Christ? So even though that is the statement I get most rejection for, I don't care. Neither did Paul. He was provoked by the Spirit. And when you're provoked, if you don't do something... I think you're called a rebellious person. Not to man, but to the spirit. And for some reason, the blasphemy title is directly associated with rebellion. That's called Duh 101. So you people think that you don't only blaspheming the Holy Spirit when you say the Holy Spirit's not God. You are misinformed. And that is a serious thing for us to look at in regard to being provoked by the Spirit and what do we do with it. Now it always comes back to addressing the issue of ministry. As in the case of these disciples and Apollos and many to come. So he asked them the core question and they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now this is a little humorous, isn't it? This is the new 12 disciples. And we got, Paulos has done an incredible job, and others that have prepared these 12. It's revealing a cultural problem in the church. Paul already knew that. And he was simply coming in and finishing the deal for them. That's all he was doing. Because it was Paul's deal. And so here we have them being honest and saying, no. Not yes, I received the Holy Spirit when I said I believed in Jesus. Well, that is the very thing he's asking them. When you believed. 
Did you receive? It's two separate actions. And he said to them, And to what then were you baptized? A little bit of logical deduction going on here. And they said, Into John's baptism. Now, guys, I want you to just keep this, maybe make a note in your Bibles right now, but I want you to keep this in mind anytime, anytime, anytime you hear John the Baptist, you can put in parentheses belief. John didn't have the Holy Spirit in him when he's baptizing all these people, even when he baptized Jesus. Nobody got the Holy Spirit until after Jesus did. And that didn't happen until after the Ascension, which ignited the great Pentecostal movement, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying we should turn a church into a second blessing. I'm telling you that's when every indwell believer after Ascension received through believing they receive the Holy Spirit. So the enemy says, okay, I'm going to cleverly build a deception in here and get people to stop halfway around the clock. Belief, belief, belief. Well, our precious friend Josh, who's become a world-known theologian to the millennial generation, has recently come out and said, I'm no longer a Christian. You see, he's only halfway around the clock. He got the belief stuff down, literally became a theologian, a pastor of a very large church, has written many books. Halfway through the chart, he needs a visit from Paul. Well, there's a theologian down at Atlanta, and I are putting together a little plan to approach Josh personally. may even require a personal visit to present the rest of the gospel. Because he said, very few leaders are getting this, Steve. They're not getting it. They didn't understand your article. They felt bad for him. They felt bad for the church. They felt bad for everyone who's read his books. They felt bad for it. They're not getting the message. The Pauls need to come in and say, excuse me, here's the rest of the story. This is what Paul is doing with these disciples. And you can 602 me 292 2982 to try to prove me otherwise, but I will not believe you. It would take a movement of provoking of the Holy Spirit to change my thinking on this. Paul's closing the loop from belief to indweltism. So Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe. I'll say it again. This is Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. And Paul said back to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. You can't have belief without repentance. So John baptized with baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him. 
You see, we wouldn't have had all these people following Jesus around from down to town when he was in his three and a half years of ministry unless they were baptized into John's baptism. Belief. And they saw a great movement worldwide, honestly, because of John. This is what's being addressed here. This is not a new message. Those who are caught up in the baptism of John, belief, and those who are a receiver of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, indwelt. That's what's being revealed in these passages. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at iomamerica.org. That's iomamerica.org.